One of my favorite stories is about a uh, preschool class that was drawing pictures in the class, and the teacher was walking around kind of observing the class and watching what all the kids were drawing, seeing what their artwork was, and so she stopped at one little girl's desk, and she was drawing a, a picture, and she asked the little girl what she was drawing, and the little girl said, I'm drawing a picture of God, and the teacher said, well, honey, that's great, but you know, no one really knows what God looks like. And without skipping a beat and without looking up from the picture that she was drawing, the little girl said, they will in a minute. I, I, I love that picture, um, not the actual picture, uh, because we don't know what God looks like. I don't, I don't know that. And I don't know anything about what God looks like necessarily. Um, but I am reminded of a quote. Uh, it's one of my favorite quotes by uh, author and theologian, a guy by the name of A.W. Tozer. Uh, he said this, he said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And certainly there are a lot of important things about you, um, many things about you, many important things about you, but perhaps there's nothing more important about you than the way that you think about God, because the way you think about God really does affect everything else about you, the way that you live, uh, the life that you live, the mindset that you have, what you think about God really does shape so much about you. And so for the next four weeks, we're going to be in a series, as you can see, called That Is Who You Are. And we're just going to spend the next few weeks looking at and talking about and thinking about who God is, who he truly is, and, and thinking about those things and processing those things and hopefully coming to a good picture of who God is. Not the total picture, um, but a good picture of who God is. And hopefully that's growing each and every day as we study God's Word, and we're going to dive into God's Word. And what we're going to do in particular is spend the next four weeks looking at four different Old Testament stories, and we're just going to use those as templates to, to teach us some things about who God is. And today, to start off this series, we're going to look at a passage that's probably familiar to a lot of us. Uh, it's found in the book of Exodus, and it's the story of the Israelites, the children of Israel, leaving the land of Egypt, leaving their captivity. You know, it's crazy to think about, I'm just, you know, it's processing what is we're kind of ending this year, moving, getting closer into a next one. It's hard to think about the last, or crazy to think about the last three years and what they look like and how different they look than it was three years ago or over a little bit over three years ago and how much our world has changed, how much our nation has changed and how much we've been through. It's been a tough couple of years, right? Uh, even, e even if there was no pandemic, it's been a tough couple of years for, for a lot of us. And not to diminish what any of us have gone through, but you talk about people that knew hard. The Hebrew slaves knew not just a couple of years of hard. They knew centuries of hard. What they didn't know was how to think rightly about God. And then one day by a burning bush, God met a man named Moses and introduced himself. And he said, I need you to go and I need you to say to Pharaoh, let my people go. And Moses said, I can't do that. I don't have what it takes. I'm not enough. And God said, Moses, it doesn't matter who you are. What matters is who I am. And God really didn't give Moses a pep talk so much as he gave Moses a greater understanding, a greater capacity to say, that is who you are. And so Moses went to Pharaoh and he said, I am, because that's who God said for him to tell the people and to tell Pharaoh who he was. I am, that's God's name, says, let my people go. 
And Pharaoh says, well, I don't know your I am, but I know that here in Egypt, I am Pharaoh. And it's pretty clear that there is going to be a match set up. And it's also pretty clear that there's only going to be one winner. And we read about this in the first chapters of the book of Exodus. And here's basically what happens. A match ensues, and it's a 10-round match. And in every round, God, big G, the God, the only God, uh, basically confronts and takes out a God, little g, that is supposed to be supporting I am Pharaoh. And when we get to round 10, God goes for the knockout. And what becomes clear is that Moses is not the one who's going to make a way, but rather he is a voice for the one who is going to make a way. And so Moses announces how the final round is going to go. He says to the people of Israel, you go take a lamb, not just any lamb, but you go get a spotless lamb, a lamb without defect or blemish, and you put the blood of that lamb over the doorposts of your home because God is going to pass through Egypt and every house that is not covered by the blood of a perfect lamb is going to experience death. And that's exactly what happens. And the next morning, the Egyptians are so ready for the Israelites to be gone, to be out of Egypt, that they give them anything they want as they're heading out. Anything they want. Just get out of here. And it says in Exodus chapter 13, verses 17 and 18, when Pharaoh finally let the people go, God did not lead them along the main road that runs through Philistine territory, even though that was the shortest route to the promised land. God said, if the people are faced with a battle, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. And so God led them in a roundabout way through the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And so even though they are, they, they've got all the equipment for battle, they're not ready for battle. They're, they're not, they, they've got the equipment, but they're not equipped. They're not ready to fight and to battle. And so God says, I'm going to take out Pharaoh, and I'm going to do it in a way, I'm going to set up the battle where I do all of the fighting. And so Exodus chapter 14, verses 1 through 4 then the Lord gave these instructions to Moses. Order the Israelites to turn back and camp at Pi Haharath between Migdal and the sea. Camp there along the shore across from Baal Zephon. Then Pharaoh will think the Israelites are confused. They're trapped in the wilderness. And once again, I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will chase after you. And listen to this, it's very important. God says, I've planned this in order to display my glory through Pharaoh and his whole army. And after this, the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. So the Israelites camped there as they were told. So here's what God does for this final match. He has Israel march into what is basically a geographical cul-de-sac. You've got mountains on one side, you've got wilderness on another side, you've got the sea on another side, and you've got the Egyptian army that are coming from behind. From a military perspective, it really is the worst place that they could have camped because they're basically trapped. And so when Pharaoh sees what they've done, he says, well, they're, they're, they're trapped. They're, they're, they're confused. They have no clue. They're like sitting ducks. And so he calls up his army. He says, we're going to chase after them <coughs> because they're hemmed in. They have no way of escape. But they have a way maker who welcomes impossibility as a way to display his glory. Now, this story we're about to read, as I already alluded to, is a story that I'm sure many of us are familiar with. We've read it, we've heard it, but my hope and prayer is that our familiar, familiarity with it won't lessen its impact on us. And so we're gonna, it's a long reading, I'm gonna admit, um, it's 30 verses, uh, so you're gonna bear with me for a little bit, but we're gonna take the time to read it, and we're gonna take the time to listen to this amazing way that God made. So Exodus chapter 14, starting in verse 5. <clears throat> 
<clears throat> when word reached the king of Egypt that the Israelites had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their mind. What have we done letting all those Israelite slaves get away, they asked. So Pharaoh harnessed his chariot and called up his troops. He took with him 600 of Egypt's best chariots along with the rest of the chariots of Egypt, each with its commander. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. So he chased after the people of Israel who had left with fist raised in defiance. The Egyptians chased after them with all the forces in Pharaoh's army, all his horses and chariots, his charioteers and his troops. The Egyptians caught up with the people of Israel as they were camped beside the shore of Pi-Haharoth across from Baal-Zephon, which, again, is exactly where God told them to go. But remember, they're, they're hemmed in. This is, have you ever been, a, I don't, we have cul-de-sacs up here. I, I knew about cul-de-sacs down south. Maybe I'm saying a word that you don't know. Basically, it's a road that you can't, you know, can't get out of. I didn't know if that's a southern thing or not. Maybe I'm just being ignorant. Anyways, forget what I just said for the last 10 seconds. As Pharaoh approached, the people of Israel looked up <coughs> and panicked when they saw the Egyptians overtaking them. They cried out to the Lord and they said to Moses, by the way, that's a lot of times what people do when they're hemmed in, when they are desperate. They cry out to God and they start blaming people. And that's exactly what they're going to do to Moses, blame him for the situation. Why did you bring us out here to die in the wilderness? Weren't there enough graves for us in Egypt? What have you done to us? Why did you make us leave Egypt? Didn't we tell you this would happen while we were still in Egypt? We said, leave us alone. Let us be slaves to the Egyptians. It's better to be a slave in Egypt than a corpse in, will, in the wilderness. I want to stop there for just a moment. I've read this passage so many times, and it is amazing to me when I read this, how easy it is for people to get comfortable in slavery. How easy it is for people to get accustomed, and that's not just, I'm talking about the Israelites here. How easy it is for people to get accustomed to bondage and just letting bondage be normal. Let us be slaves in Egypt, they said. But Moses told the people, don't be afraid. Just stand still and watch the Lord rescue you today. The Egyptians you see today will never be seen again. The Lord himself will fight for you. Just stay calm. Then the Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the people to get moving. Pick up your staff and raise your hand over the sea. Divide the water so the Israelites can walk through the middle of the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians and they will charge in after the Israelites. My great glory will be displayed through Pharaoh and his troops, his chariots and his charioteers. When my glory is displayed through them, all Egypt will see my glory and know that I am the Lord. Then the angel of God, who had been leading the people of Israel, moved to the rear of the camp. The pillar of cloud also moved from the front and stood behind them. The cloud settled between the Egyptian and the Israelite camps. <coughs> Excuse me. As darkness fell, the cloud turned to fire, lighting up the night. But the Egyptians and Israelites did not approach each other all night. Then Moses raised his hand over the sea, and the Lord opened a path through the water with a strong east wind. The wind blew all that night, turning the seabed into dry land. So the people of Israel walked through the middle of the sea on dry ground with walls of water on each side. Then the Egyptians, all of Pharaoh's horses, chariots, and charioteers, chased them into the middle of the sea. But just before dawn, the Lord looked down on the Egyptian army from the pillar of fire and cloud, and he threw their forces into total confusion. He twisted their chariot wheels, making their chariots difficult to drive. Let's get out of here. Away from these Israelites, the Egyptians shouted. The Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. <clears throat> when all the Israelites had reached the other side, the Lord said to Moses, raise your hand over the sea again. 
Then the waters will rush back and cover the Egyptians and their chariots and charioteers. So as the sun began to rise, Moses raised his hand over the sea and the water rushed back into its usual place. The Egyptians tried to escape, but the Lord swept them into the sea. Then the waters returned and covered all the chariots and charioteers, the entire army of Pharaoh. Somebody ought to make a movie about this, by the way. Of all the Egyptians who had chased the Israelites into the sea, not a single one survived. But the people of Israel had walked through the middle of the sea on dry ground as the water stood up like a wall on both sides. And that is how the Lord rescued Israel from the hand of the Egyptians that day. Isn't that an awesome story? I know we read it and it's just easy to like, we read these stories, we hear them from, you know, since we were growing up. It's an incredible story. It really is an incredible picture of how even when it seems impossible, God will make a way. That's what he does. Because that's who he is. And again, I know we've heard this multiple times, but I hope that doesn't cause it to lose its effectiveness and its impact on us. So what do we learn from this story? There's a lot, obviously. There's so many directions we could go. But what do we learn from this story about our God? Well, I think the first thing we need to remember is that one way God makes a way is by not always letting us go the way that we want. One way God makes a way is by not always letting us go the way we want. It says that God didn't lead them along the main road, even though that was the shortest route. That was the the, the quickest path, so to speak, (coughs) to the promised land. And I think one of God's greatest graces to us is the detours he often makes us take. Because the truth is, we way overestimate our capacity to consistently choose the right way. We, th- we think we know it. We think we know the right way. And we definitely want our way to be the right way. But we way overestimate our capacity to choose the right and best way for our lives. Proverbs chapter 14, verse 12 sums it up a lot of times in our lives. There is a way that appears right to us, but in the end, it leads to death. And how many of us can look back at times in our lives where we chose or the the way that we chose that we thought was right turned out to be the wrong way? So here's what you got to know. When you start walking with God, there are are going to be times when the the right place at the right time feels like in our spirits because we want to push back on a lot of things that God desires for our lives feels like the wrong place at the wrong time. There are going to be times in your life where being in the right place exactly where God wants you to be feels like the wrong place at the wrong time. But you ask any believer who's walked with God long enough and they will tell you that there are times when they're in their lives where they would look back and say, God, now I see that I can praise you for the detours. That you didn't let me go the way that I wanted and now I praise you because I see what you were doing. That's not the way I wanted to go at the time, but now I look back and I see what you were doing and how you were working. And here's what I've learned. God isn't always going to lead you down the easiest path. Now, when I say I've learned it, that doesn't mean I always like it, but I have learned it. God isn't always going to lead you down the easiest path, but he is going to lead you down the path that is going to grow your faith the most. That is going to grow your trust in him the most, which leads me to a second truth. Another way God makes a way is by taking us through what we want to go around. By taking us through what we want to go around. You see, when you're walking with God and an obstacle is in the way, 
that isn't necessarily a sign that you're off course. You know, see, sometimes when, when we feel like maybe God's leading us down a path and then we hit an obstacle or we hit something that, you know, we say this is a little bit tough, then we want to back off of that and say, well, maybe this is not the way God's leading. But, but an obstacle, a tough path, doesn't necessarily mean that that's a sign you're off course. God often calls us to what he wants us to go through. And that's because God can see a way to the other side when, when you and I still can't. Psalm chapter 17, or 77, verse 19 says, Your path led through the sea, your way through the mighty waters, though your footprints were not seen. I love that picture. Though your footprints were not seen. God can see the path even when you and I can't see it. And why does God do it this way? Because God knows that the way through is going to lead you to greater dependence on him. For example, listen to what the Apostle Paul says, who was not without his own difficulties in life. He says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. He says, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles we experience in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death. We felt like we were going to die. But this happened, that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Why does God take you to the Red Sea? Because God knows that you are never in more desperate shape in your life than when you are no longer desperate for God. You are, in, you, you are never in more desperate shape in your life than, you, than when you are not desperate for God and desperate for him. And so God is going to make a way by taking you through what you and I often want to go around. It's going to take you to those sea moments to grow your faith muscles. You know, so often we pray things like, God, get me out of fill in the blank that I'm going through. God, solve this equation. Get me out of it remedy it, you know, make it go away. And so often God answers, no, I'm going to take you through it so that you can get something out of it. Because there's a level of faith and growth and courage and strength that he cannot develop in us unless he takes us through it. And so Paul not only here, but in uh, another place in Corinthians, talks about his thorn in the flesh, right? He says, he says I, God, I don't like this. I don't want this. I want you to take it away. I want you to remove it. I don't want to deal with it anymore. And God says, Paul, I'm not going to take you around it. I'm going to take you through it. Because in the midst of it, you experience a depth of my sustaining grace that you would never understand if I took you around it. You see, God doesn't give you grace instead of trials. That's what we'd rather have, right? How many of us would rather, you don't have to raise your hand because I know every single one of us in here would raise our hand. How many of you would rather, would like to have grace instead of trials? God, give me your grace instead of having to go through the trials. That's not how God works. Oftentimes, God gives us grace in the midst of our trials. And so don't be discouraged. Don't be resentful when God takes you through something that you don't see a way through. Because, and this is big, any way God makes is for his glory and for your good. Any way God makes is for his glory and for your good. You see, God doesn't just make the best way. God makes the way that is for our best. 
And it's not the way that's just going to lead to our temporary escape from captivity. It's going to be the way that's going to drown it forever. You know, I find it interesting. Maybe it's not interesting. It's exactly the way God, but you know, sometimes it's easy to overlook. Why, why does God lead them through the Red Sea? Maybe part of it is because if he had led them around the sea, the Egyptians are still there. They're still going to be chasing them. And every time they're going to be looking over their shoulder wondering, when are the Egyptians coming? When are the Egyptians coming? And forever their lives are going to be cemented. Their identity is as runaway slaves. But God says, I don't want you to experience just temporary relief from your bondage. I want it to be drowned, which is a beautiful picture of baptism, by the way. I want you to be a new creation. I want you to experience breakthrough. I want you to find freedom. I want the enemy that has pursued you to be gone forever. That's what I'm about. That's why we're going through this. But remember, when God makes a way, it's not just for you. Over and over, we read God saying, I'm going to display my glory. I'm going to make a way that puts my glory most on display. And so when God, or when Pharaoh said, who is this Lord that I should listen to him? Who is this I am that you talk about, this God? And God says, I'll take that challenge. And I'm going to answer your question in a way that not just you, but many will understand and know. In fact, 40 years later, when the children of Israel got to the banks of the Jordan, it says that the Canaanites were trembling in fear. 40 years later, they're trembling in fear because they had heard about what the Israelite God had done at the Red Sea. Isaiah chapter 63 Verses 11, 12 says, Then his people recalled the days of old, the days of Moses and his people. Where is he who brought them through the sea with the shepherd of his flock? Where is he who set his Holy Spirit among them, who sent his glorious arm of power to be at Moses' right hand, who divided the waters before them to gain for himself everlasting renown? And then in verse 14, it says, This is how you guided your people to make for yourself a glorious name. You see, here's the reality. God is going to make a way for you to put his glory on display. Because God is more concerned about others witnessing his glory than he is about what would give you the most comfort. So let me ask you a question. Is that okay with you? You know, we come in here and we praise our God and we we say we trust him. Is it okay with you If God leads you down a path that is not the easiest for you, but it is best for the reputation of God. That's a hard question. It's one we have to grapple with, but it's one we have to answer. Because you see, when God makes a way for you, he wants to make a way that's going to bless people beyond the way that he made for you. I think about Harriet Tubman. She was born in 1822 on a slave plantation in Maryland. She endured incredibly harsh and horrific young life as a slave. She saw three of her brothers sold into slavery and never saw them again. At age 27, she was about to be sold, but she ran away through the Underground Railroad. She made it all the way to Pennsylvania into a life of freedom, and she knew that God had made that way. But she also knew that God had made that way for the sake of others. And so for the next eight years, she went back time and time again, freeing scores and scores of slaves. No GPS. She didn't pull it up, Google Maps on her phone. No walking at night a lot of times. No compass. She said, "'Twasn't me. "'Twas the Lord. 
I just said, Lord, I don't know where to go. I don't know what to do, but I'm trusting you. Because here's the thing, you never have to wonder if God is going to make a way for people who are desperate to be delivered. In fact, he already has. See, here's the greatest truth of all. The only way to freedom is the way made by God. That's the only way to freedom. You and I can seek it in a a million different ways, but I'm telling you this, and it's the, the biggest truth of all. The only way to freedom is the way made by God. Throughout the story of the Red Sea, one of the things that you see is is that God's way of salvation is depicted. You stand still and watch what the Lord will do. Moses has to raise his hand, raise his staff. It's God who's doing all the work. It's God who's bringing the salvation. It's God who's making the way. You just stand still and you watch the Lord work because salvation is The essence of salvation is God doing for you, God making a way for you that you cannot make for yourself. And the way that God made was made possible through the blood of his son, the perfect lamb, Jesus Christ. And because of the blood of Jesus' death and the power of his resurrection, through our belief in him and our baptism into him, we can enter, as Paul says, into a new and living way that Jesus has opened for us. You see, Jesus didn't just come and say, I'll show you a way. He didn't just say, I know about a way. Jesus said, I am the way. And you're never going to lose your identity as, as a slave until you trust the way that he has made. You know, scripture tells us, we don't like to read scriptures like this, but scripture tells us that we're all gonna stand before the judgment. Every single one of us are gonna stand before the judgment. We're going to stand before God and we're going to have to answer for the life that we've lived. But you see, God's desire is not for us to go around the judgment. God's desire is for us to go through judgment, covered in the blood of Jesus Christ. It's a path to freedom that only God could make. And he did. Because he truly is a way maker. My God. That is who you are.